Good morning. Uh, so the little uh, sheet says Psalm series, but when you have a last minute audible because of COVID, you uh, sometimes change directions. So um, we're actually going to be in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So join me there. I know everyone gets really excited. Revelation, all right? This isn't one of like those controversial passages in Revelation. So, but it's one of my favorite passages in the book of Revelation. And so I'm excited to dive in this morning, Revelation chapter 4 through 5. So as you're turning there, uh, just, uh, so I've, I talk a lot about kids, probably uh, probably a little too much in my sermons, but anyway, here we go again. Um, and so I, I'm constantly amazed by kids' imaginations, like, like my kids, and you're probably like, when I tell these things, it's like, oh, that's just your kids, you're amazed by that. But I constantly, like, kids are coming up with things, not just mine, but, you know, as I'm around their friends and th- things that they do, um, but Wyatt, our middle child, um, I mean, just the, the funniest things, like, that he comes up with. Um, so he loves this show called PJ Mask, and when he and his brothers start saving the day around the house, like, I mean, out of nowhere, like, he just started doing this thing where he makes this noise with his mouth, like, I don't know, we can't impersonate it. It's much cooler than that, actually. Uh, and then he just starts, and it's like putting on like a whole suit of armor. And then he's just like powered up like Gecko from this PJ Masks show. And then like if he's running a race with his brother, right, he like, he gets ready to go. And then he like, he start, we saw him one day just like start hitting his back before the race. And we're like, what's he doing? And then we heard him one time and he said, rocket boosters. And then he just like shut off, right? And, and so like kids' imagination, it's just fun, right? Um, and, uh, and so um, yet <coughs> as we grow as adults, like we, we sometimes, we talked about this a few weeks ago, even when I was preaching, like we, we kind of leave behind that kind of imagination. Um, and the, we think like, oh, adults, like they've lost their imagination. The reality is, is we haven't, right? Like we are really good at imagining all the, the negative things, um, but, but sometimes we, we are good about imagining the positive things in life as well. I mean, think about it. Like, we all want to imagine a world that is, is full of justice, that's full of love and mercy, right? A, a, a world that, where, where tears are no more, where death is gone, where, where suffering and despair and depression are, are, are eliminated, right? Where we don't have things to be, even be anxious about anymore, Right? We long for a world like that. And, and the good news is we look in the book of Revelation, really all of Scripture, but the book of Revelation like, points us toward a day where there is going to be a kingdom set up in which all of that will be true. Like all of the good that we can imagine. And, and so in the heart of every human being, though we long for that kind of day, that kind of kingdom to become in place where rulers are not oppressive and, and as humanity, we, we aren't bitter and fighting one another anymore. We long for that kind of kingdom. But where do we find hope for that kind of kingdom? Because as we look across our world, like, we just don't see it. Some we search for a leader, right? Whether it's, it's a political leader, we, we find hopes on the left or the right, and, and some future leader that's going to come in and be able to make, make things better and, and finally bring in a new age, right? And we look for maybe... Fl- political philosophies or other kinds of philosophies and, and leaders in, um, in academic circles, maybe to bring new ideas to the table that would finally fix it, right? It would bring in this kind of kingdom. We look for even pastoral leaders, religious leaders, they're going to be able to come in and, and, and 
walk with us into a, a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of community. But then we find that those leaders constantly disappoint. Right? In this sin-ridden world where we, 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 we never measure up, leaders fall and they fall hard. And there's, it just seems like there's story after story after story, particularly in the church lately, right? Over the past several years of leader after leader that, that not only disappoints, but falls well short of even the qualifications we see. And so we sometimes, rather than searching for a leader, we, we shrug off and we say, we've, got to, like, we've just got to stop following after leaders and we've just kind of got to do things on our own. We've got to figure out how to, how to live this life on our own. We're going to isolate ourselves as some people's solutions. Others, it's just like we've got to, we've just got to come together as a community, get rid of hierarchy, get rid of leadership, and just, just kind of do this thing as one unified whole. But here's the reality. There is it is right. There is no mere human leader that's going to bring us into the kind of kingdoms that we imagine and long for. But we also cannot avoid having a leader because we can't get there on our own. We need a worthy leader. And in today's text, that's what John points us to. He points us to something better. He's writing this while he's in exile is suffering and isolated, feeling the pain and the destruction and the brokenness of this world in a way that, that most of us really can't imagine. He was living in an empire with an emperor named Caesar, a king that defined himself as special, that demanded worship of his people, and yet was destroying and oppressing most of them. And yet John points us in Revelation 4 through 5 to one leader, one king who is worthy of our loyalty, who is worthy of our devotion, who is worthy of our trust. And so let's read. Let's just start. We're going to read with uh, the first chapter, and then we'll read section by section in chapter 5. But let's read Revelation chapter 4 and begin to get a picture of this. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side are, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now just as we seek to unpack um, this text and, and what you're speaking to us this morning. God, some of the, the strange images and things like that that we, that we read about here, God, I pray that you would just give us understanding, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, speak through me this morning, both to, to everyone sitting in here, including myself. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. God, may we be transformed by this picture of who you are. And may we submit our lives to you. Lord, I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at chapters 4 through 5 this morning, we get this incredible picture of, of the king who sits on the throne of all of the universe, of the heavens and the earth. And this is the main point. We are called to follow the one that is worthy of your whole life. That's what we see here in this text is that he is worthy of our whole life. And there is a call in response to this picture of who God is to follow him with everything in us. God is the king worth following with our whole lives. And God is worthy of every ounce of our strength, every moment of our day, and every desire of our hearts. But why? I guess the question we've got to ask first, why is he worth all of that? what we begin to see in chapter 4. We get a peek into the throne room of God in these two chapters. First off, we see that he is the holy king. In verses 1 through 8, we see that he is the holy king, and it breaks down. Look, there was some strange imagery here, right? All right, we'll get to those, uh, those living creatures with eye bound, and they all never cease to uh, keep speaking, and uh, we'll get to those in a moment, um, but even some of the basic stuff early on is strange. And so what what is Scripture getting at here? These are images that are used elsewhere in the book of Revelation as well as they're, they're drawing on things from the Old Testament. All right, Images that, that the people that John was writing to would have like immediately called to mind and, and got what he was getting at. But we today, sitting here 2,000 years later, oftentimes, we don't know our Old Testament as well as the early Christians did. And so we miss some of these things and um, we, we miss the, the beauty of what he's getting at here. And so we first we see that God is a holy king in verses 1 through 8. In verse 3, it says that his appearance is like jasper and carnelian. These are a couple of stones, right? It's not saying that like literally God like is made of these stones, but rather that it says his appearance is like these things. And so it's drawing to mind, it's giving us a, a, a simile, a metaphor here. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> for us to understand something about God's character, something about who he is. And Jasper is later referred to in the book of Revelation in, in chapter 20 and 21. And, and it's the one stone, there's a bunch of stones listed in those chapters, it's the one stone connected directly to God's glory, to his glory. And so we see that his appearance is this glorious thing, it's this unparalleled beauty 
unparalleled holiness. There's a separateness and a uniqueness to God is what, is what John is trying to communicate to us when he says his appearance is like Jasper and Carnelian. God is unparalleled in his beauty and his glory. But not only are his surroundings holy, or his appearance communicating his holiness to us, but his surroundings are as well. We see that God is righteous in all of his ways by the surroundings that surround him in the throne room. In verse 3, it says there is a rainbow-like emerald with the appearance of an emerald around the throne. This rainbow should draw our minds back to the story of Noah that after the flood dissipates, God gives the rainbow as a promise that, that he will not judge the world in the same way that he is judged, but it's drawing to mind to us this picture of God's righteous judgment, God's salvation that comes through judgment, right? It happened with Noah. God saved Noah and his family and the human race through Noah and the judgment that came. He saved them, and in a similar way, he does that through Jesus, a much greater way he does that through Jesus. And so the rainbow is this image drawing to our minds of how God brings salvation through judgment. He judged Jesus for our sins and brings salvation. And so this picture of the throne room is supposed to draw our minds to his righteous ways, his goodness, his grace of salvation coming through judgment. And then the verse, uh, verse 5, uh, lightning and thunder. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. So, so we see this flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. This, this, I can't help but think about um, our son's imagination again. So Wyatt, once again, uh, when, whenever uh, he thinks of flashes of lightning and thunder, we say, what's thunder and lightning like? He goes, and then he's like blinking like this. We were like, what is he, like, what, what do you mean? Like, and then, you know, it's like for him, like when you blink, like especially when you're up here in front of all these lights, it looks like lightning, right? So for that two-year-old, that totally makes sense, right? Um, but uh, this lightning and thunder is drawing to mind for us God's righteous final judgment. A righteous final judgment from God. From the throne room. So over and over again throughout the book of Revelation, we see this image come back up. Right? He sees this, and every time you see it, it is closely connected to judgment. And God's righteous judgment, right? And, and so his surroundings are communicating to us that he's righteous both in the, the salvation that he brings and in the final judgment that God brings on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And then verse 6, we see this reference here at the end. It says, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. <coughs> and what we see here is, one, the picture of the sea. At the end of the book of Revelation, we see that, the, um, that John describes the, uh, the world, and he says that the sea was no more. Does that mean like there's no water, there's no more oceans? What is he getting at? The reality is, is that picture of the sea in the Old Testament, particularly in the ancient world, the sea was a place of chaos. It was a place of a source of evil. It was this image that was used to, to communicate chaos and evil in stories and in the biblical text as well. And so when we get this picture of a sea of glass, right, there's this calmness, right? There's this clarity, 
right? The, the ocean, the sea is normally this, this place of, of chaos going back and forth with waves and, and you can't see to the bottom and so there's this mystery and there's this, this why, there's this darkness, this communication of this evil idea. And so now it's saying, no, God has brought complete order. The king of the universe brings peace and a calming and, and the end of evil. There is no place of, of evil before his throne. Sin has no place. So when there's a separ separateness of God from chaos and evil, from the brokenness of this world. And so he is the holy king in his appearance, in his surroundings, but also in his, this is partly the 24 elders, right? In verse 4 that it's talking about there. One second, I'm going to grab a drink before I get into this <coughs> coughing fit here. I know the guy who replaced the guy who had COVID has a cough. Everyone's real comfortable about that. All right. So, um, his attendants around the throne, 24 elders. All right. Verse 4, we see the 24 elders described. They have 24 thrones. And there, there's 24 elders seated on the thrones. And they're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. This image of white garments, once again, is emphasizing the holiness of those who are surrounding God, the one who is on the throne, the four living creatures we see in verses 6 through 8. All right, there are lots of strange things, all right, lots of strange descriptions. Just know, like, John has seen things in heaven that he can't fully uh, describe himself, all right, but, but what he's getting at more than anything is there's this picture of just the wholeness of creation, right, in these, these four living creatures, the ox, the, the lion, the face of a man, and the eagle. There's just a wholeness of all of God's creatures that are pictured there. And so what is being communicated is that God's creation recognizes his holiness. All of his creatures cry out in this way, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the holy king. That's what the verse, verse the first Eight verses of this chapter are screaming at us over and over and over again. He is a holy king. See, usually, the closer you get to someone, the closer you get to anything, the more ordinary and flawed it becomes. Right? Like, when you start to date someone, like, it's really awesome at first, and you see all the good things about them, right? And, and like, it's just like, you're talking to your friends about how awesome and great they are, and you can go on and on, and then you get engaged, and you start talking about some things in premarital counseling, and you're like, oh, wait, I didn't know that about you. And then you get married, though, and then it's like, no, you really discover, like, you begin to get closer and closer and closer to that person, and you discover all the flaws, Actually, part of the beauty of marriage, right, is that as we get closer, though, we, begin, we learn to love one another even in the midst of those things. And yet, here's the beautiful thing about God. The closer we get to him, the closer we get to his throne, the more beautiful he becomes. The more crystal clear his glory becomes. The more amazing and loving and just and right he becomes. And we can see it more clearly the closer we get to him and the more uh, his uniqueness stands out. His perfection is brought into view. That's what we see happening in verse 8. John is overwhelmed by God's uniqueness and his perfection. And here's more good news about what those four living creatures cry out. At the very end of verse 8, who was and is and is to come. 
God always has been, he is today, and he always will be holy. He always will be perfect. He is unchanging. Elsewhere in scripture it says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. He is perfect. He always existed, and he will always exist. Like, like we are contingent beings. We are created. We need someone else to sustain us. God does not. He has always been perfect, and he always will be perfect, and there will always be more of his greatness and his holiness for us to explore. First and foremost, if you hear anything else, God is worthy because he is our holy king. And number two, though, he is the creating king. He is the creating king. Verses 9 through 11, we see, once again, the four living creatures lead God's people to declare, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The four living creatures lead God's people. That's what I believe the, the 24 elders represent, right? It's, it's, the, it's this picture of the, the 12 apostles and the, and the 12 tribes of Israel together. So both Jews and Gentiles, all of God's people, the complete people of God before his throne, worshiping him, and they're crying this out that he is worthy because he is the creator. There's much more that they cry out later on, but they're worshiping because he's the creator. Just that simple truth that we as Christians so often take for granted. We, just, we, we know God's creator, and, that, and we don't slow down to recognize like, how stunning and amazing that is, that he created everything from nothing. And just take a moment, lift up your hand in front of you for a second. Just look at the details on your hand, like the, the muscles as you, as you close your fist and, and open it back up. And, and all the little wrinkles and, and, and changes in the fingerprints on your hands that are unique to you. Yeah, I know you can't really see your fingerprints right now, but, but you have fingerprints and they're unique to you, right? And recognize that God wrought every detail of your hand, every detail of who you are. And he made every single thing and every detail of all of creation from here to the ends of the universe. He is worthy because he created everything from nothing. He is worthy because our very existence depends on him, right? Like I said a moment ago, we're contingent, right? We are created, and he is creator. He will last forever, and we will only last as long as he sustains us. He creates us, and he sustains us. So he is worthy because he's a holy king, but he's also worthy because he's the creating king. And then let's get to chapter 5. He is worthy because he is the victorious king. Read with me the first five verses. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. All right, what in the world is he getting at there, right? Like the scroll image and uh, like uh, this, this weeping that John has, right? What in the world is going on? So the scroll, first off, what we see is that no created thing's able to open this scroll that has all this writing from the throne of the very holy creating God of the universe. He's got this scroll and we can't see into it. John can't see into it. He's been brought into this heavenly vision and he's not even going to be able to see into it. So he's devastated. He's devastated. Why is he devastated? Because the scroll is representative of God's plan of judgment and of redemption. It's representative of his plan for all of history, for all of the world. It's representative of that coming kingdom that we long for, right, from the deepest recesses of our hearts. That's what it's representing, of how God was going to redeem the brokenness of the world and make all things new. That's what this scroll represents. And so John is devastated when he realizes that, that no one is going to be able to open it, and then the angel comes and he says, don't worry, don't worry, there is one. There is one that can open it, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. In other words, he's saying the promised king, the Messiah, the one that we had all been waiting for, and John knows this one because he walked with him for three years. He watched him die on the cross. He watched him rise from the grave and ascend to that throne room. He knows who he's talking about here. It's Jesus, and Jesus has conquered he is the conquering, victorious king, and that is why he's worthy to open the scroll, because he's conquered. He's the one that's going to make this scroll, what's written there, that plan that God had. He's the one that's going to bring it about. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the promised king, he's victorious. And so Jesus, unlike us, unlike other leaders that, that bring momentary hope, Jesus can bring lasting hope of a kingdom that renews all things because he's victorious. I don't know about you, but we've been watching a lot of Olympics at my house. We celebrate Olympians as they take home the gold, and rightfully so, right? All their work and, and sacrifice that they make to finally get to that point, and finally victory, right? We love it. We celebrate with them. We, we, we read about their stories. We watch all of that just crazy amount of Olympic coverage on Peacock, right? But even more so, far greater than any mere Olympic victory that we get so worked up about every four years, Jesus is worthy. He's worthy because his goal is the kingdom. It's not some passing accomplishment, but it's a kingdom that's for you and for me, for all of his creation, and he overcame it all to bring it about. He made the greatest sacrifices of all. He is the victorious one. And so he's worthy. But at this point, I think we have to be asking the question of what makes Jesus's kingship so different? How is it not just another power grab, right? I mean, how did Jesus conquer? I mean, we've seen plenty of rulers that, that were unique in certain ways, that, that, um, that made great kingdoms, that, um, that were victorious, that wiped out nations, that, that dominated the world, Alexander the Great, and, and, and in John's day there was Caesar, and we've seen others come and go. But what makes Jesus different? We've touched on some of the ways, but far beyond any of those, 
It's that Jesus didn't conquer. He didn't just come in for another power grab, right? He didn't come in wiping out and domineering, but by laying down his life. It's a completely different way of finding victory than the world goes after, right? Every other leader, every other conqueror comes in to to wipe out his enemies, and yet Jesus comes in to lay down his life for them, for us, his enemies in our sin. And so Jesus is worthy because not only is he the holy king of the universe, is he righteous and perfect in a way that you and I never will be, not only is he the creating king, not only is he the victorious king, which all of those things make him high and holy and worthy of our praise. They do. They demand our praise. But it's not good news until we also recognize that he's not just victorious and that he's going to wipe out his enemies, but that he also, he is the selfless king that comes and lays down his life. his enemies. He conquers through his own death. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 10. Read with me. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb. This contrasts so starkly with the lion of the tribe of Judah that's mentioned just a verse or two before. He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is conquered. But he's also the lamb of God. He conquered by being slain. Jesus conquered through death to rescue us from death. And then he rose from the dead, showing that he has victory over death, that he has victory over our sins, he has victory over the brokenness in our world, that he is making a new creation. And he invites all of us into that, into that that just, righteous, loving, perfect kingdom that we long for in this world. We look around at the brokenness. He invites us into that to experience that, to one day enjoy tears gone forever, death, disease gone He invites us into that. And he does that because he went to the cross and died. Because here's the good news story of all of Scripture. We're at the very end of it, but all of Scripture is this one big good news story called the gospel. And it starts with creation. It starts with this king that we're talking about here today. And he creates everything good and righteous and perfect. Over and over again, that's the, the, the message that resounds in Genesis chapter 1. He looks out over his creation. After each day of creation, he says, and it was good. It was good. And so all of his creation was under his rule and reign, and it was good. And he dwelt among his creation. But then something happened in Genesis chapter 3. Humanity chose not to sit under the rule and reign of that good creator of the universe. They said, I want to be king. And they chose the one thing that God said, no, this is off limits. Don't do this. 
just submit to me, follow my way, because I know what's best. They said no. And they took the crown, and they put it on their own heads because they thought, we can do it better. We know better. That's what we do every time we sin. We're choosing to go our own way rather than God's way. We're choosing to take the rule and reign from the God of the universe, the perfectly wise, good, and gracious God of the universe, and we put it on our own head, and we walk our own way. And because of that, we walked away from God. We chose to walk away from God. It broke our relationship with God, and it broke all of creation because sin seeped out from us. And death entered in. And from that point forward, though, God, though he separated us from him for our good so that we wouldn't be immediately judged, he was executing a plan to bring us back to himself. And so all throughout the rest of scripture, you see him pointing forward to Jesus and how Jesus would one day come and he would live the perfect life that you and I don't. He would live the life submitted to the righteous rule and reign of his father. And he would live that out, and yet he would still die. Not for anything he had done, but he would go to the cross choosing willingly to go to the cross, to be slain, to experience the death, and not just a physical death. Like, Got to remember that the, 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 the most painful part of the cross, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not because he was experiencing such physical pain, though he was. It's because he was, he was experiencing the Father turning his face from him as he poured out his wrath on him. He was experiencing the relational brokenness that you and I deserve because of our sin. He experienced that as our substitute so that we wouldn't have to. And he died. But three days later, he rose again. And he showed that his death was not just a way so that we could be neutral with God, but so that he could actually redeem us into a new creation so we can live with him for all of eternity. He redeemed us he ransomed us, is what it says in verse 9, from our sin and from our debt. And then one day, what we see at the end of the book of Revelation is that he's going to restore all things back to how God intended, into the goodness of what he intends. That's the good news story. And Jesus is worthy of our whole life because he gave us his whole life. Yes, he's the holy king. Yes, he's the creating king. Yes, he's the victorious king. And those things deserve our worship and our awe, certainly. But it is good news that he is those things because he is also the selfless king that invites us back into relationship with him. Jesus is worthy of our whole life because he gave his whole life to us. There's a there was a pastor by the name of S, Dr. S.M. Lockridge in, in San Diego, an African-American pastor there years ago, and he just gives this powerful picture of the worthiness of our king. I just want us to, just, to take a moment here, and I'm just going to read through this picture that he paints for us, because I don't want us to blow past how worthy our king is. Because if anything else, we walk out of here today just in awe of how great and mighty and worthy our king is. And so let's just hear his meditation on this. And I won't come close to being as awesome as he, he was at this. Uh, you can listen online if you want to listen to him. Um, but here's a bit of what he said. The Bible says, my king is a seven-way king. 
He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's a king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory, and he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seen telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He is enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally grateful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in, in the solitude of himself. He's awesome. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder, do you know him? Well, my king, is the king. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway to righteousness and the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him and they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him and the witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. Church, do you know him? Those of you sitting here today, do you know him? Are you following him? Will you follow him? Because that king is worthy. That leader, God, Jesus, the God-man, he is worthy. He is worthy of all of your life. Do you know him and will you follow him? That is the most important question you can ask yourself today. Because he is worthy. He is worthy. And that's the call to us, though, is to submit to the one who is worthy. He is worthy beyond all measure. He's worthy of our whole entire life. 
question is, will we follow him? We either will of our own volition, or at the end of all things, he will force our knees to bow. But it will not be pleasant. See, 17 times in these two chapters, throne is mentioned. 17 times. The one who is worthy reigns. He reigns over all of history, he reigns over all creation, and he reigns over all of our lives. He is sovereign. And so the call is to bow the entirety of our life before him. He's worthy of it. And it's good news for us to do that. Like it's a, it's a grace from God that we get to willingly choose to do that. And just like those around the throne, this is what the call is. Verse 14 of chapter 5, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The elders fell down and worshipped. They bowed their lives. Will we submit to the one who is worthy in absolutely every aspect of our life? Jesus demands this too. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, the very first words we see recorded of Jesus in the Gospels is this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom we've been talking about. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You know, another way to talk about that word repent is to talk about taking off that crown that we've chosen to put on our head and give it back to God. To say, I'm not going to go after my own way anymore. I'm, I'm going to follow your way. That's what repentance is. It's sure it's being sorrowful over the fact that we've gone our own way and for the brokenness that's brought into our life, but it is a turning of our life. It is a turning over of our crown, back over to God. And it's a trusting that what Jesus did is good enough. It's good enough to bring us back into relationship with God. It's good enough that, that when we, we simply turn to God, and away from our sins that he saves us. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of any works of righteousness. Not because we attend church. Not because we've got ourselves fixed up and all back together. But because we've trusted that he is worthy. And that what he did is worth everything in our lives. The way into the kingdom of God. Into that good, righteous, perfect kingdom. That new creation kingdom that we've talked about. The way into that is repentance and belief in the good news of the gospel. Far too often, Mark Sayers says this, that our culture wants the kingdom without the king. Our culture wants the kingdom. They want justice, right? And we, like, the whole world, we see it crying out for justice. We see it crying out for truth. We see it crying out for, for abuses of power to be made right. We see, we see the world crying out for the kingdom, for all the things that Jesus says the kingdom is, and yet they don't want the king. You cannot have the kingdom without the king. That's what Jesus is getting at here in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so if you want to enter into that kingdom, Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Submit to me. He says, in other words, he puts it another way elsewhere. He says, follow me. Follow me with your whole life. 
It says, pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. It's submit to him. We don't like that word submission, right? Like we want the kingdom without the king. We, we want to be able to do it our own way. We want to just, like we want the, the benefits of the kingdom, but we want to do it our own way with the king, the crown still being on our own heads. But that's not how it works. And it's good because we're really terrible kings. I look around the world. Like this isn't his fault. It's ours. We've got to own it. And so we've got to submit to the one who is worthy because only he can bring about his kingdom. And only by submitting to him can we enjoy the kingdom with him for all of eternity. And so if you've never done that today, if you've never known the king in his worthiness, if you've never known the king in his goodness and what he did for you, then turn and trust in him for the very first time today. Submit your life to him. Say, Jesus, look, I don't know what all this looks like, but I want to stop being king of my own life and I want to trust that for you to do. Save me from having been my own king. You can do that right now in your seat, and we would love to celebrate with you. You can find one of us after service. We'd love to celebrate with you. But if you've been walking with Jesus, you have been following after him, we know that all of us do this imperfectly. But examine your life today. How are you submitting to him? What area are you still holding on to the crown? Because we're called to submit all of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasures over to him to say, what do you want to do with this, Jesus? We're merely stewards of these things. How are you submitting? What is your following like right now? How are you submitting your thoughts and your convictions and your desires? How are you submitting your media usage and, and, and what you're being formed by to him? Are you being formed by the king or are you being formed more by Fox News or CNN or whatever tickles your fancy for the day? Because submitting ourselves to him is not just following a list of rules, but it's being formed and shaped into his image. So how are you submitting your life to him? Submitting to your life to the people that he's surrounded you with in this church for your good. Because guess what? He's given us all the spirit of God living with inside of us so that we can point one another back to the king. And so he does call us to submit to one another as a kingdom and priest, we go to one another on behalf. So how is your submission? Examine your heart. Where are you still clinging to the crown? For many of us, we've spent so much time searching for and giving ourselves to some pursuit, some relationship, or some philosophy. And certainly some of these things are good and worthwhile, but none of them are worthy of our whole selves. None of them are worthy of our whole beings. No merely human leader can lead us to where we want to go. They will all disappoint. None of them can bring the kingdom that we desire. No leader and no pursuit are worthy of our wholehearted devotion except for one, and that's Jesus. He is worthy. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in awe of who you are, recognizing how, how far short we fall. Recognizing that, that only you are worth pursuing, and yet we go after so many other things. 
so many limited things, so many imperfect things, God. And I just pray you would help us to stop clinging onto our crowns, that we would see your worthiness and we would cast them down before you, give them over to you, and follow you with our whole selves. God, expose our hearts this morning to show us where we're still clinging to our own crowns. And let us fall more deeply in love with you so that we would follow wholeheartedly after you with everything we have. And I pray this in Jesus' name.